Talks of David Solomon. Podcasts on topics ranging from Jewish history and the Bible to Jewish mysticism, philosophy and thought. To find out about David's talks, books and more, visit davidsolomon.online. And now, here's the lecture. Who remembers what I identified as the key concept by which we can understand the 17th century in Jewish history? How do we, how we access it? Community. Community. The concept of community. When we talk about the 16th century, we're really following upheavals and transformations and changes. But in the 17th century, the most useful way of doing this is via community. And communities are like isolated dots on a map. Each one has its own flavor. Each one has its own conditions and circumstances. There is an overall interlocking of these communities, but there's nothing that really is sweeping them up to be one collective theme other than tonight's talk. Because those of you who are vaguely familiar with the 17th century knew that at some point in 17th century Jewish history, I had to deal with this topic. And that night is tonight. So whereas normally I'm jumping across a plethora of ideas and people and situations, tonight I'm going to be drilling deep on basically one individual and the tumult surrounding them. But this is a very, very big topic. This is a topic that even to condense it in a talk like this evening, even if we spend the entire talk on this topic, I want you to be aware from the outset that we are really, really bringing down and distilling what I want us to understand from this. And I am trying to embed this in a wider historical perspective and look at it thematically, but there's certain things we need to know. Before I start, just so I know at which level we're talking, put up your hand if you know already what I'm talking about. Doesn't mean that you score an eight out of 10, it just means that you know who I'm talking about. Or you think, you put up your hand if you think you know. All right, put up your hand if you've got no idea. Okay, well I can tell you that some of you with your no idea hands up do know, you just don't realize that I'm talking about this person. All right? After that fantastic introduction completely lacking in content, I will now commence. My talks are like Qantas, right? I always tell you where we're going at the beginning and phones are off. And the exit's over there. I'm going to start this with a personal anecdote that I am hoping that some of you will, or at least most of you, will not understand. And then by the end of the talk, my aim is that you will understand what the impact or import of this personal narrative is. But about a decade ago, 2008 actually, 11 years ago, uh, I was giving a lecture on Jewish history in Istanbul. Now, if you want to know what it's like to live in a Jewish community in the 16th and 17th century, then you don't go to Amsterdam of today, you don't go to New York, you don't go to Los Angeles, you don't come to Melbourne. You go to communities like Istanbul or communities like Tehran 
the Jewish communities that are living there, which are incredibly vibrant Jewish communities, are living in the kind of conditions that all Jewish communities in the diaspora were living in, in the 17th century. In other words, you don't just rock up to events. You don't just read in the local newspaper, oh, they're having a Purim parade in the park, I think I'll go and have a look. It's not how it works. And in Istanbul, you just can't turn up to a lecture by David Solomon. They have to know who you are. You have to be a member of the Jewish community. And if not, you have to ring up in advance and explain why you want to be there. So the rabbi that was organizing this talk was telling me on the day I arrived, and the talk was in the evening, that he had had a phone call that morning from an individual that wanted to attend my talk. And he said to him, and I said, he said, which part of the Jewish community do you belong to? Are you part of the Ashkenazic community, the Sephardic community? There are two, at least two different communities uh, in, um, in Istanbul, plus Chabad. So he said, I'm not really a member of any of those communities, but I'm Jewish. And he said, what is your name? And he said, my name is Tzvi Hagoel. Tzvi the Redeemer. And of course, the rabbi immediately knew that he was one of the small community of the Donmeh that are still living in Istanbul. Now, as I said, I'm hoping that some of you will not understand that, but by the time I finish the talk, you go, oh my gosh, there's still the Donmeh living in parts of what was the Ottoman Empire. But let's Let's, let's forget me for a moment and let's go to the 17th century. Let's draw the map. You all know when the 17th century is. Starts in 1601, ends in 1700. And we all know what that is. Of course it is. And here's Spain, Portugal, Egypt, North Africa, Italy, Greece. And I'm going to draw Turkey a little bigger today because... That's going to feature in what we've got to do. Here's the land of Israel. All right? Where to even begin? But I will begin, really, where we need to begin. You will remember that one of the things I spoke about last week, I spoke about a great many things last week. I threw a whole lot of stuff, and I said, all of these points are important, and they will all come to the fore in the things that we're going to talk about. But one of the things I spoke about was the diffusion and spread of Kabbalah. Remember that? That really what had gone on in the 16th century was nothing short of a total theological and mind transformation within the Jewish world that happened in the north of Israel, predominantly in Tzfat, and culminated really in the massive revelations of Isaac Luria. And I explained last week very briefly, kind of towards the end, about how Lurianic thinking, and we, t we have talked about the fundamentals of Lurianic thinking in the 16th century, we sp I spoke, spent some time on it, the idea of tikkun, the idea of fixing the world, the idea that the divine sparks are inside reality and we have to redeem them as part of our act of restoring 
we help God to restore the world so that it become a, can become a vessel for the revelation of God. All of these ideas, some of which have Gnostic themes, some of which are highly kind of a mix between Gnosticism, Neoplatonism, Rabbinic thought, but are completely and innovatively transformed in the thought of the RE. Gnostic. You want me to spend, a, you want me to spend half a minute on Gnostic? If it wasn't this talk, I probably wouldn't have time, but it's probably a good question. Gnostic, spelled Gnostic, right? Gnostic is not any single one strand of thought. It is a thought field, if you like, that has been current in human thinking for a couple of millennia now, and every once in a while has a revival. It is a basic, there's a number of features, but what is most common to Gnostic uh, thinking, or Gnosis, is the idea that A, it is by knowing certain things about reality is the path to salvation. There is generally a war between the side of light and the side of darkness. All of those big cultural monuments at the end of the 20th century, beginning of the 21st, in Hollywood, yeah? Harry Potter, uh, Star Wars, uh, The Matrix, The Lord of the Rings for sure, all fights between light and darkness, all Gnostically informed. Yeah? Neoplatonism is the idea that we've discussed also, the idea of devolution, of spirituality, this idea of spirituality emanating until it becomes coarse materiality. We know from the Luria, from the Aris thinking, from Lurianic Kabbalah, that the divine vessels that were to contain the divine light if creation smashed, the sparks went into reality. Some of you are already looking at me with glazed eyes. <laughs> However, all of these are aspects of Lurianic thought. And Lurianic thought, which is massive, comes out in two forms. Remember I said that last week? Israel Sarug took Lurianic thought and went basically to Italy and from there it spread into Europe via Germany. And Luria's greatest disciple, Chaim Vital, spent 50 years in Damascus working through his master's notebooks and was eventually buried with them. When I say his master's notebooks, his notes of his master's teachings. And they dug them up and then they concentrated an editorial effort in Jerusalem throughout the 17th centuries to get all the Vitalian writings in order. Now, at first, you might think that's an interesting place to start, that's, but that's kind of recondite, that's fairly academic and abstract. But these are very, very important themes in understanding what I'm going to talk about tonight. Because what I'm going to talk about doesn't just happen as the result of any one circumstance, but happens as a result of quite a number of different factors, but the spread of Kabbalistic, Kabbalistic thinking is absolutely paramount. This was a time when the world started looking like the wildest dreams of Kabbalists. And not just for the Jewish people. The 17th century, the world was changing very fast. It had changed fast in the 16th, and now in the 17th, as we spoke about last week, as a result of the world wars that Europe was plunged into, as a result of the Enlightenment, as a result of many of the other changes that were going on, the world was literally transforming in front of people's eyes. And that created a great amount of apocalyptic expectation. 
Now, that's the first thing we need to understand. The spread of Lurianic ideas. Eventually, and I'm, I, when I say eventually, you have to understand that there are dozens of books in between that line, event, that word eventually, right? I'm cutting it down, but if we have to get to the essence. Sarugian thought mixed with a bit of Vitalian. There are two main thinkers that spread Lurianic thought. One is Sarug. They have different flavors, these Kabbalahs. Yeah? Slightly different flavors. Sarug is a bit more ecstatic and ooga booga. Vital is a lot more clinical in his understanding of the divine vision based on the Sfirot that Vital gave. So Sarugian Kabbalah, mixed with a bit of Vitalian, finds its way into Germany and a rabbi, a Kabbalist sitting in Germany called Rabbi Naftali Bachrach. These names will be on the notes. Rabbi Naftali Bachrach writes a book that he publishes in Amsterdam in 1647. A book called Emek Hamelech. What is the meaning of Emek Hamelech? The Valley of the King. And in the Valley of the King, this phenomenal book, <laughs> a book that really in some ways just completely fuses the mind of anybody that reads it. In Emekamelech, Bachrach just went full on ecstatic, exploding not only about the inner secrets and dimensions of Lurianic Kabbalah, about, about more particularly about how the different movements of the divine spheres can be understood in the light of current events, particularly the great war, that, the great cosmic war that has been happening and is still happening. And in the 17th century it was still happening, but as I stand here in the 21st I can equally say, and is still happening, between Esav, Esau, and his spiritual ethno-projection into history, and Yishmael, and its spiritual ethno-projection into history, between which the people of Israel, the Jewish people, must mediate if we are to bring the world to its tikkun, the reconciliation between Christianity and Islam, and that that's happening now, says Bachrach, because we are on the absolute verge of the massive, ginormous, messianic revelation. I don't know if you heard about it, but the Jewish people have been waiting for a Messiah for a while. Now that, he published that in 1646. It's a big fat book. And I've got to tell you, I made a Kiddush in relation to that book. I made an innovation. I discovered something that other scholars hadn't seen. Because all scholars of Kabbalistic literature are aware of the Emekamelech, but I actually schlepped myself to where I could see an 1647 copy of it, the original edition. And when I opened up the original edition, 
I was amazed to find, I'm telling you this only because I'm being purely indulgent because it's interesting to me. You're going to sit there and go, oh, really? Tell us about your war stories? You're here to hear about the 17th century. But it's interesting because on the frontispiece, you know the frontispiece? Not the cover, but the first page. If you held it up to the light, and I discovered this by accident, if you hold it, because they have lamps in the British uh, Library, in the British Museum, there are lamps. If you hold it up to the light, there is a watermark on the page, and the watermark is of a man, obviously, in 17th century outfit, on top of a horse, blowing a shofar. Then I checked through massive books that give you, scholarly works, that give you all the watermarks of the 17th century in Holland, which was a source for the production of paper. This watermark did not appear. So this watermark was made specially for his book. There's no question that the entire thrust of the text was, yes, I'm going to explain to you Lurianic Kabbalah, but if you really want to understand Lurianic Kabbalah, it's not so much about what's happening up there, it's about what's happening down here, and everything, all these divine configurations are about to come into alignment. The Messiah is about to come. In fact, I'm going to tell you when he's coming. And he's coming in 1648, which is uh, next year. There's no question that throughout Jewish history there have been certain years that have been considered likely for redemption. It just so happens 1948 was also one of them. They always seem to be these 48 years. 1648 was regarded not just by Bachrach, but by a number of other Kabbalists as a propitious year for the Messianic arrival, which means that when Bachrach wrote that, people went, okay. But, When 1648 came, it was not a year of redemption. It was a year of horrendous catastrophe. Horrendous catastrophe, the likes of which had not been seen for a long, long time in Jewish history. I didn't mention this last week as one of the things going on because I knew that I would be focusing on it tonight as a prelude to you-know-who. Because in 1648, and what else happened? Why did we talk about 1648? Why was 1648 already mentioned last week? Remember I said 1648 is a significant year if you're understanding the 17th century in Jewish history. And I mentioned last year, what happened in 1648? The Treaty of Westphalia happened, which meant that basically the 30, year war, the 30 years war had come to an end for all these states of Europe, the great tumult of wars between the Holy Roman Empire and the Protestant states. They basically calmed down and created the Treaty of Westphalia. And that was 1648. So right as that's and right at the end, suddenly, well, maybe not suddenly if you follow the circumstances, but certainly as an outburst, in the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, which is a massive area here and covered really what we would now call Poland and Belarus and the Ukraine and all the um, many of the, the of the Baltic states and basically the whole of Eastern Europe up until and bordered up to the Ottoman Empire, 
flared up in a huge uprising led by a person, a Cossack, called Bogdan Khmelnytsky. Now, Khmelnytsky, many people think that Khmelnytsky was a peasant. He wasn't a peasant. Khmelnytsky himself was noble-born, but he allied with the Cossack peasants in order to affect this uprising in the Ukraine in the name of some, they didn't call it the Ukraine, but in some kind of Cossack nationalist rebellion that was <coughs> going to establish an independence from the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth. They didn't like the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth for a couple of reasons. I'm now summarizing huge historical discourse, so please forgive me if you know more about this particular, these particular events. But the basic summary is that <laughs> what flared it actually was the fact that the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth was about to go to war with the Ottoman Empire, and then just as they were about to go to war, they cut a peace treaty, and this really, really annoyed the Cossacks because the part of the big part of the Cossack livelihood was making raids on the Ottoman Empire. But if they're not allowed to because they're supposed to be at peace with the Ottoman Empire, that's really annoyed them. But one of the other things was the fact that, obviously, the noble classes of the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth and Kingdom had effectively disenfranchised them and alienated them. They weren't taking really any interest in the running of the country. And they had alienated these class, these peasant classes. And one of the ways in which they had alienated them was that they had subcontracted various things like collecting leases and fees on all sorts of public utilities and also taxes to Jews. So Jews were just doing the government work, but of course with the brunt of the resentment. And so when the Cossacks uprose in this huge rebellion, which is called the Cossack Rebellion, or the Khmelnytsky Uprising of 1648-1649, the Jews were the easiest and the primary and the first line of target. They are known, those massacres are known, those, cause, cause, and I'm telling you, the word pogrom barely does justice to what happened. It was the largest series of massacres that happened in Europe prior to the Holocaust. We know them as the Gzerot, the decrees of Tat, and Tach. What is Tat and Tach? Why are they called Tat and Tach? I'm telling you this because we're all students of history and if you're sitting at those fancy dinner parties where they're discussing this and they go, oh, the massacres of Tat and Tach. You don't want to go, Tawad, Tat and Tach. But that's what they're called. Why are they called Tat and Tach? No one answers, no one knows? Well, actually, it's kind of, it's more Tach and Tat. But Tach is 408. That's the Jewish year. We're now in 779, yeah? They were in 408 and 409, which is Tach and Tat. Yeah? Now, I've got to talk to you about Tach and Tat for a second because um, if I was giving this talk 20 years ago, 
which we all would have been too young to be here anyway. But the general numbers of the Tachantach massacres have been revised by historians quite extensively. For a long, long time, based on various reliable historians, both at the time and since, the general understood numbers of Tachantat were around 100,000. That is hundreds of communities. And there were hundreds of communities destroyed. But those numbers have somewhat been revised. And first of all, then they revised and say, well, it's probably 100,000 at a maximum. First of all, it was 100,000 at a minimum. There's 100,000 maximum. Now most historians are sitting on somewhere between 40 and 60,000. But they still represent mind-boggling numbers of people who are killed. As I said, it was the largest full large-scale massacre of Jews prior to the Holocaust in Europe. Bigger even, bigger even by most estimates than the destruction of German Jewry during the First Crusade when they wiped out the Jews of the Rhineland and that was something. Yeah, okay, do you know what? I'm going to amend what I said prior to the 20th century. The Chmielitsky pogroms, the Tachantat are regarded as immense in Jewish history not simply because of the numbers, because it doesn't matter whether it was 50,000 or 100,000 or a quarter of a million, whether it was 500 communities or 200 communities, or more or less, because the psychological effect of these massacres was no less. It was immense right throughout the Jewish world. Basically, the Jews had been more or less secure in these areas. But this was right across an entire part of Europe. Jewish communities were massacred, with the exception of a couple that managed to escape by being economically viable or either by perhaps being in the, having the good fortune of actually being defended by the Polish-Lithuanian kingdoms, which didn't go out of their way to protect Jews. In some cases, cities were taken by the Cossacks, and the Jews, sometimes up to 3,000 of them in a the town, were taken out into the forests and butchered. The stories that we read, the contemporary accounts of the Khmelnytsky massacres, regardless of numbers, are just some of the most appalling things you would ever not want to read. They weren't just killed. They were killed in cruel and horrendous ways. The Cossacks vented all of their fury and of their pent-up frustrations on the Jews because they couldn't reach the nobility. Now, let's look at those two factors. We have a widespread diffusion of a thought revolution that is creating the conditions for messianic expectation. We have a massive massacre that lasts for two years going right across Europe. And I've got to tell you that people talk about Tachantat, about 1648-1649, but even whatever the numbers are there, there's this thing that happens in the Polish-Lithuanian Kingdom for the next couple of decades called the Deluge. And in the Deluge saw a number of invading armies, the Russians, the Swedes, all coming in to have their say 
Yep, nothing changes. Nothing, nothing changes in Europe. It's exactly the way that Putin will have no problem sending the Russian army into the Ukraine. We see these things happen again and again. And so the hundreds of thousands of Poles and, and Jews were killed in the following decades. This was just the most intense facet of it. The 17th century became awful for most Jewish communities in Poland and uh, in the Ukraine and Belarus and that whole area. So we have these two conditions coming together. And then we can understand why in 1648 this very, very important and seminal year in 17th century Jewish history here on the west coast of Turkey in a town, a city, town called you're right that's its contemporary name what was it known as then if very good if you were in the 17th century you would know that there are some very very big communities in the ottoman empire there's basically a triangle that's called the golden triangle they are all incredibly influential and important communities there is Salonika, which we've talked about extensively in the 16th and the 17th centuries. There's Constantinople, yep, which is now Istanbul. Very big, strong, powerful community because, of course, if you're in the Ottoman Empire, that's where the capital is. And Smyrna. Smyrna, which today is known as Izmir. And in Smyrna, in 1626, in 1626, had been born a person on Tisha B'Av of that year, on the 9th of Av. And his name is Shabtai Tzvi. Now... <laughs> We probably know more about Shabtai Tzvi, his life, his thoughts, his personality, his works, his running around, almost every single thing he did, we know about. And there is more known about him, I would say, far and above any other individual of the 17th century. Seriously. This, if we're going to talk later in this course about Spinoza, being the first secular person. Shamtai Tzvi was the first self-expressed celebrity of the modern era. And everything he did was documented. And he was born on the 9th of Av. For those of you, us, who are not as familiar, let's remind people what the 9th of Av is. Put up your hand if you know what it means, the 9th of Av. What is that? Put your hand up if you know, so I know who I'm talking to. Put up your hand if you don't know the significance of the 9th of Av. Good. The 9th of Av is the commemoration of the destruction of the temple. Both of them. The first and the second temple were destroyed on the 9th of Av. It is the saddest day of the Jewish year. It is a major 25-hour fast. We sit on the ground. We read the Book of Lamentations. It is a big deal. 
there is a legend in the Talmud and the Midrash that the Messiah when he comes will be born on the 9th of Av. Shabtai was born on the 9th of Av in the year 1626 but it, and he was a quite a quiet keep to himself kind of guy although he did have a certain noble bearing he did exhibit at certain points some strange behaviors that's documented but he basically kept to himself and was more or less, he got a very very good education he was very very intelligent I'm not saying he was at the top rank of the brilliant of the brilliant but he was very very smart very charismatic got a very very good Jewish education a rabbinic education became a chacham became a chacham became one of the wise rabbis of Smyrna at a very young age already by the time he was 18 he was recognized as a chacham he had a lovely voice people loved to hear him lead the prayers but he was a bit odd and people couldn't quite put their finger on that anybody, anybody know people like that like they're, they're odd but you can't quite work out why right we all know someone <laughs> usually they're in our family now in 1648 news of the Chmielnitsky pogroms reached Smyrna now when I say reach Smyrna this is the 17th century people this is not the case that you know you flick on your phone to find out the latest news or you it's not even you're getting a daily newspaper you might have a daily something but it's going to be if it's coming from somewhere else outside a 50 mile radius it's going to be weeks if not months old but eventually the news of the pogroms reaches Smyrna and when Shabtai Tzvi, who by this time has already been immersing himself in Kabbalistic study, but he's not so much reading Lurianic Kabbalah, he's going back to immerse himself in the Zohar, which we discussed in the context of the 16th century. We talked about the centrality of the Zohar, which is a 13th century document to the, or at its latest, to the reformation that happens in the Kabbalistic reformation of consciousness that happens in Tzvat. Shamta Tzvi is immersing himself in the Zohar and this young introspective man has a tremendous realization and basically it's this enough enough whatever we've been trying to do to bring the Messiah has not worked something needs to change either that or there's only one other possibility that the Messiah in fact is here is here and these horrendous things I'm hearing happening to our Jewish brothers and sisters in Europe are the birth pangs of the Messiah and if I've had this realization it's a bit like Descartes on crack right so Descartes we discussed last week right Descartes thinking oh I'm thinking therefore I must exist right so sometimes he's going I'm thinking this why am I the person thinking this why are these thoughts things I'm thinking 
because I must be the Messiah. Now, we know now, because as I said, we know so much about Shabtai Tzvi, that we know almost to, I'm not, I mean, I'm not a trained psychologist. My mother was a clinical psychologist. I'm sure there might even be people in here this evening who are clinical psychologists. But many have poured over all of the details that we know of Shabtai Tzvi, and the diagnosis is fairly clear. He was manic depressive, and that's going to play a big part. And he was bipolar, clearly. And there are many other kinds of contemporary diagnoses that we can apply to it now, but they didn't have that kind of analysis then. He was just odd. But after his acceptance of his own messiahship in 1648, he went into a different kind of personality transformation from about the age of 22. And in this transformation, which we now understand is manic depressive, he would experience states of extreme illumination. He called them illumination, manic ups and incredible downs of depression. This was a mental health issue and a tremendous affliction for his soul. He didn't like it, but that's what was happening to him. But he's still the Messiah. And as part of that, he started exhibiting what he started. He started, this went on right throughout his life, but he began what, we, what he referred to and what later became known amongst all his followers as Ma'asim Zarim. Ma'asim Zarim. Those of you who know Hebrew will know the meaning of that expression. What is the meaning of Ma'asim Zarim? What's Ma'asim? Deeds or acts. What's Zarim? Strange. Strange acts. Strange deeds. The most obvious one to start with was the fact that he henceforth would pronounce in full the name of God. Jews do not do that. Jews have not done that for thousands of years. The only time that the name of God, the four-letter tetragrammaton, which you can read but is not vowed, but we have an idea what the voweling is, but no one says that. Instead, we use another word in the synagogue service, right? the word Adonai. We do not say the name of God either when we're reading the Torah or in prayer services, that name was only ever uttered in the temple by the high priest on Yom Kippur. But Shabtai Tzvi starts using the name openly when he prays, when he's called to the Torah. This was regarded as very, very bizarre, to say the least, for the very conservative community of Smyrna. And eventually, eventually, they asked him to leave. His behavior was getting, after two or three years, these Ma'asim Zarim, which at first really were religious in, well, everything was religious in nature, were really kind of mild compared to what's going to happen later on. But it was too much for the community to handle. And they, whereas till now, they had just kind of, he'd been a Rahmanas case, someone that they had looked on with a kind of a pity, a mixture of pity and concern. But now, 
you need to move on. So Shabtai Tzvi, oh by the way, while he was a young man in Smyrna, because I know this is what you're thinking to yourself, <coughs> young man, 17th century, where are the women in his life? By the way, I'm going to be discussing women of the 17th century at length next week. I know that we've dealt with a lot of men. There are women in the 17th century, and we will get into those next week, big time. But in fact, he contracted two marriages. He married twice, uh, even before he was forced to leave Smyrna. He married twice, and each time it ended in divorce very soon after, because he never consummated them. Another kind of weird aspect of him. He, there was something weird about Shabtai Tzvi sexually, and he... Sorry? No, no, much later. Much later. We're talking, yeah, we're, this, is, this is his young man. So, and also, that's not necessarily the case, because we must make sure we don't get Shabtai Tzvi confused with Jacob Frank, who was 100 years later. So Shabtai basically spent the next 10 years wandering. And we, those scholars of Sabbatean things are very, very aware of every place he went into and so on. Uh, remember that the great, big, massive work on Shabtai Tzvi was Gershom Sholem's 900-page book. And that was written in the 40s. And in the 70, 80 years since then, there's been immense amount of Sabbatean scholarship on top of that. So we know a lot. But the two things that really highlight is in all his wanderings, eventually he makes it to Salonika. Every time he goes into a community, it's the same pattern. He goes into a community, he's received because he's a chacham, he's given honors, he's given provision, he sits around, and eventually at some point he exhibits this strange behavior, which causes concern at first, and then after it keeps repeating itself, they ask him to move on. He, that's a pattern for like 10 years. And eventually he makes his way to Salonika. And in Salonika, I want to just highlight two places that he visited because it's so interesting in terms of some of the Ma'asim Zarim that he was doing. In Salonika, <coughs> and I also want you to imagine the effect of this on a community like Salonika in the 17th century. And remember, I spoke about Salonika, I obviously spoke about Salonika a lot in the 16th century, but even last week when I was laying the groundwork for the 17th, Salonika, anyone remember what was going on with Salonika? Salonika was actually in the 17th going through a bit of an economic downturn. We were beyond the golden age of Salonika in terms of its rabbis, its doctors, but nevertheless it was a very powerful conservative commu community. Shabtai Tzvi went to the synagogue and in front of everyone on the bimah, set up a chuppah, set up a chuppah, a marriage canopy, took out a Sefer Torah, a Torah scroll, and married it. Now, that, as you can imagine, caused some level of bemusement. And that was the reason why, not long after that, they moved, asked him to move along from they just thought that he was odd. No one really thought of him at this point as being overly dangerous. Just someone you might pity, someone weird, very talented man, very charismatic, beautiful voice, very learned, 
but too weird for us. You need to move on. In Constantinople, he also sat for a while and was greeted by the rabbis of Constantinople, some of the most respected rabbis in the Ottoman Empire in the world. And they embraced him and they gave him honor and he hung out in Constantinople. He made friends with Kabbalists in Constantinople. He was a chacham and he was a chaver. He was a friend, a colleague of the rabbis of Constantinople until the time when in a period of illumination, because there was illumination, there was depression and there were these periods of normalcy. But they could stop at any moment and he'd be suddenly hit by an ecstatic illumination. And in one period of illumination, he decided that he would observe the festivals of Pesach, that's Passover, Shavuot, the festival of weeks, and Sukkot, Tabernacles, all the three pilgrim festivals, he would observe in one week. Which he did. And believe it or not, that was considered strange. And once again, he was asked to move on. Where we catch up, to bring the story short, I mean, I'm telling you, this is, the biography is huge, but that's the basic pattern. He ends up in the early 1660s, he's in Jerusalem. We haven't yet got to the big apotheosis yet. We're following him, but we're laying the groundwork of this. Now, in Jerusalem, once again, he enters into this period of normalcy and he becomes a colleague of the rabbis in Jerusalem. Remember, I spoke last week that Jerusalem intellectually, certainly in the realm of Kabbalah, is going through a renaissance of sorts because they have all the texts of Chaim Vital that they're trying to get together. Jerusalem's kind of a bit of a Kabbalistic epicenter, but it's also an epicenter for many other aspects of hopes of the Jewish world, money is constantly being sent to Europe, it was a very hard place to leave Jerusalem. It only had about two or three hundred Jewish families. Jerusalem itself, like the rest of Palestine, was in economic decline. So much so that on, before getting to Jerusalem, Shabbat had spent a little bit of time in Cairo. And in Cairo he had made some very influential friends. And apparently he'd managed to leave Cairo before he'd freaked anyone out. So by the time he got to Jerusalem, and Jerusalem was in dire straits, and we're wondering whether any of the wealthy Jews in Cairo might be able to help them out, pay certain pressing taxes. Remember, we learned last week from the story of the Shalah that the governors, the Islamic governors, were not as benign as they were the century before. And so they sent Shabtai Tzvi who had already been in Jerusalem for a couple of years, wandering around and, you know, just hanging out in the alleyways and, you know, keeping to himself and maybe it looked a bit odd, but wasn't doing anything too much to freak people out. They sent him on a mission on behalf of the community of Jerusalem to Cairo to collect funds to see if he could convince some of the wealthy Jews of Cairo to help them out. And Shabtai was a hero. Because he befriended some of the wealthy Jews, people like Joseph Raphael, wealthy Jews of Cairo, and came back with a heap of cash. And that kind of secured him hero status in the community of Jerusalem at, for the time being. As a result of which, Shabtai kind of entered into possibly the most prolonged period of normalcy. But he was still afflicted by these illuminations and depressions. 
You have to understand, what would it be like for someone in the 17th century who had a major mental health affliction and couldn't not, not only didn't know where to get help for it, but could barely even diagnose it? Eventually, he decides that he's going to go back and spend an extended period of time in Cairo. Now in Cairo, and we're almost at the big moment now, in Cairo, he's there for a couple of years, between say 1663, 1664. While he's in Cairo being normal, although still believing himself to be the Messiah, and still at times exhibiting little bits of bizarre behavior, but not anything off the scale that people couldn't say, well, that's what Kabbalists do. What do we know about Kabbalah? What do we know about mysticism? Who knows what books he's read that's informing what he's doing? But it was more or less normal. But during this period, word came that there was a girl that was had been born in Poland and had been orphaned in the Chmielewski massacres back in 1648 at the age of eight. She was born about 1640 and at the age of eight her parents were killed in the massacres and she was rescued by some Christians. The various accounts, some say a Polish nobleman, some say some nuns, she was raised in a convent. Either way, she left that and then traveled around for quite a number of years. Her name was Sarah, or Sarah. Traveled around for quite a number of years and we know that she visited various communities. Amsterdam, we know she was in Livorno, Leghorn in Italy. This was a girl that by all accounts, attractive, but more prominently was of what we might call easy virtue and made no real secret of that either. But she started having visions and dreams and she would tell people that she was being told an inner calling that she was the one that was going to marry the Messiah. Now obviously people are traveling between communities and you know at the end of the day mental health issues or not a shidduch is a shidduch right if she says i want to marry the messiah and sometimes he's going oh i'm the messiah then why not put these two people together and that's what they did some wealthy patrons brought sarah this orphaned girl from the wars in europe from the massacres in europe brought her she would have been maybe 21 22 oh no, maybe 22 at the time and 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 he would have been he would have been in his late 30s they brought her to cairo and they met and they married so now shabtai tzvi around about 1664 1665 shabtai tzvi is living in cairo and he's married and he's got supporters, wealthy patrons, and he's kind of stable. But he's still undergoing the manic depressive episodes. But as with many, many people that have mental health issues, bipolar, schizophrenic, whatever it is, 
what is documented about them, that they will have episodes where they realize that something is wrong. Where they realize that this is not how it should be and they actually need to get help. And he realized that in this extended period of normalcy in Cairo. He knew that he had a mental health issue. He knew that he had an afflicted soul. How could he fix it? And that is the moment. That is the moment. Just when he's getting normal. When maybe he should have met Sigmund Freud. <laughs> is when he met someone completely different. Because... He heard, and people were hearing, about a young faith healer, a Kabbalist, a deeply spiritual and holy young man, only about 20 years old, living, of all places, in Gaza. And his name was Abraham Nathan Ben Elisha Chaim Ashkenazi. And we know him famously. He was given the name Ashkenazi. Elisha Chaim was given the name Ashkenazi because he came from Germany, Poland, and he's living in Jerusalem, so they call him Ashkenazi. And that becomes the family name. His name is Avraham Nathan Ben Elisha Chaim Ashkenazi, who we know and the world knows as Nathan of Gaza. And Nathan of Gaza was not just a Kabbalist. He had, he had grown up. Nathan of Gaza was born in Jerusalem, grew up amongst the great Kabbalists of Jerusalem. He studied at the feet of Yaakov Hagiz, one of the great Kabbalistic teachers of Jerusalem in the 17th century. He learned all the major texts. He was a serious, bona fide, credited, full-on, recognized Kabbalist. And he married the daughter of a wealthy Patron, as you do when you're a brilliant young rabbi. He was, Nathan was brilliant. And he decided he wanted to go and live in Gaza, which is where his in-laws had their operations. And he was sitting and studying and becoming holier and holier and more and more inspired. And he started getting a reputation for being able to give people a special tikkun, a special correction for their soul. He could see the root of your soul and give you a correction for it that would fix your afflictions. So when Shabtai Tzvi heard that this Nathan is living just, well, not around the corner, but he's in Cairo, Nathan's in Gaza, and he's literally a spiritual doctor, well, I'm going to go and see Nathan of Gaza, who would have been about half Shabtai's age by this point. Shabtai's nearly 40. And he walks into Nathan of Gaza. And when he walks in, it's all recorded. Nathan stands up and says, I'm not going to give you a tikkun for your soul. The reason you believe you are the Messiah, can you being told this by your psychiatrist? The reason you believe you're the Messiah is because you are the Messiah. <laughs> and the reason your soul goes through all these ups and downs and afflictions is because your soul is a microcosmic reflection 
of the vicissitudes of the Jewish people themselves throughout history. Your soul is living that. And your job is to bring redemption to the world. People have to know about this. And all your strange acts that you've been doing, they're not strange acts. They're manifestations of the messianic spirit that is coming into the world. You are the channel for that. You are the Messiah. And, says Nathan, not only that, but last Shavuot, the festival of Pentecost, of weeks, I was... In it. Remember I spoke about that in the 16th century? Remember the great revelation of the Magid that came to Yosef Karo in the 16th century in around 1530 in Salonika that really changed everything and made people like uh, Al-Kabetz and all these other guys go to Israel and start the whole Kabbalistic revolution? Well, Nathan had a similar episode in 1664 and he says, in that vision, I saw you, I saw Shabtai Tzvi sitting on the chariot. It took some convincing. They went for several walks. They had some discussions. But eventually Nathan convinced Shabtai that he really, really was the Messiah. And that is the moment where everything just went spectacular. People think that the whole of the Sabbatean movement is this decade. It was basically a year and a half of absolute intense madness that affected not just them and not just this community but everywhere everywhere it exploded out it starts with Nathan and Shabta going back to Jerusalem Nathan uh, Shabta by now is going in pomp and ceremony. He's got followers dancing behind him as he rides on a horse. They ride around Jerusalem seven times and then enters the city announcing himself. In fact, he rode around it on a donkey seven times and then entered into it announcing himself as the Messiah. Everything about Shabtai is rooted deeply in Jewish sources. But it's all mad. The rabbis have... Sorry? Nathan of Gaza, was he normal or... <laughs> he was he was more than normal he was they say that if Nathan of Gaza had not got caught up in the Sabbatean ideas he would have ended up being the most brilliant Kabbalists that we've had he wrote several phenomenal tracts don't know when you say normal it's hard to gauge in this perspective <laughs> but he was certainly together he wrote several major theological tracts that I hopefully I'll get a minute to talk about what's in those books. Justify, he wasn't just the, he justified it theologically. He turned the whole of Lurianic Kabbalah on its head to make Shabtai the Messiah. And he, he remained normal, stable, married. Jerusalem can't handle him. So they send him and his entourage away. And then they just go on these huge tours right around this golden circle of the Ottoman Empire. And eventually, gaining followers wherever they go, and as they gain followers, more and more news is spreading out into the rest of the Jewish world about how the Messiah is here, and the Messiah is coming. And it went further, and it went further, and the whole of the Jewish world gets into a frenzy. Sometime towards the end of 1665, Nathan basically stayed in Gaza. But Shabtai went with his entourage, and by the time they get 1665, they're back in Smyrna. 
and in Smyrna he's welcomed with the hallelujahs and with everything he is the Messiah because all this news and frenzy had preceded him there was one synagogue the Portuguese synagogue the main synagogue in town the rabbis of which and the congregants of which refused to recognize him as a Messiah but the rest of the community did and one Shabbat morning they all marched down to the synagogue of the Portuguese community to take care of the, the infidels. The infidels were the ones that didn't believe. The Portuguese synagogue locked its doors. Shabtai Tzvi personally took an axe and smashed down the doors of the Portuguese synagogue in Smyrna. When they got in there, inside the synagogue, mayhem. He gave a sermon in which he completely lambasted all the community, community leaders, compared them all to unclean animals, threatened people, forced people, announced himself not only as the Messiah but as the leader of the community of Smyrna and that he was going to show them how things are be done, should be done. They took out, they, they started a service. He read from the Torah but instead we're not going to read from the Torah scroll, we're going to read from a printed Bible. This was. We're going to read from a printed homage. We're going to call women to the Torah. We're going to call women to the Torah. And he made a massive speech to women saying, I am the Messiah. This is the Messianic age. I am going to liberate you from this horrible patriarchy called Judaism, rabbinic Judaism. I'm going to relieve you from the curse of Eve. I am the deliverer of women. Massive. And just started calling women up to the Torah. Several other innovations. And eventually at the height of this frenzy announced finally, we're going to do it. We're going to do it. We're going to go to Constantinople. And I'm going to stand in front of the Sultan of the Ottoman Empire and I'm going to take the crown from his head and place it on my own and that will be the moment and that of course is the moment because the Ottoman Empire rules the land of Israel so once he becomes king of the land of Israel then that's it then the Jews return to Israel the Messiah is here and everybody's reporting wondrous miracles and so on and so Shabtai and his entourage, which has grown by now because basically he won over the entire community of Smyrna. Smyrna went completely Sabbatean. You have to realize what we're talking about here. We're not talking just about some idiot from the comic books, you understand? Hundreds of community records right across the Jewish world. The pages are ripped out between 1664 and 1666. They're ripped out. Communities tried to bury the shame that they had about what they went through in the Sabbatean period. When Shabtai Tzvi travelled to Constantinople, as you know here, are the, I mean, it's very badly scaled, but here are the Dardanelles, right? You've got to go through there to the Sea of Marmara. There's Constantinople, there's the Black Sea, right? So they're arrested in the Straits of uh, the Dardanelles, he's arrested because people of course had gone to the Ottoman authorities and said this guy is fomenting rebellion against the Ottoman Empire, he wants to make himself king and he's causing all the Jews to bubble up and they arrested him 
and they held him prisoner for months in various places. One of those places, by the way, one of those places was, this has a unique connection with Australian history, one of those places was Gallipoli. So, the very fact that the Ottoman authorities arrested him and did not kill him, I mean, for the Ottoman Empire, for the Sultan and his officials to kill someone fomenting rebellion was like you, you know, eating a sandwich while you parked your car. I mean, really, it was, so the fact that they didn't kill him and they arrested him and imprisoned him, and not only imprisoned him, but actually gave him quite good conditions so that he could set up a kind of mini court there, was nothing short of miraculous, and that is when everything went bananas. Bananas. Constant news, constant news and reports floating out from everybody that went towards Europe to the great communities of Frankfurt, Hamburg and Frankfurt and Amsterdam and Europe, let alone Prague and Krakow. Everybody, oh, not just that, in Iraq, in Yemen, in Morocco, everybody was feeding on this news. What news have you got? Because they were just hearing miracles. Hundreds and hundreds of people right around the Jewish world would suddenly break into prophecy, ecstatic prophesying. Men, women who could barely read were just like uttering prophetic statements. A mass psychosis right across the Jewish world. Because this was it. The Messiah was coming. Samuel Pepys, who's living in London, a British gentleman of the 1660s, now, we're going to talk about this later in the course, but Jews have not been in England for long in the 1660s, right? The whole concept of Manasseh ben Israel and Cromwell, that's only happened in the 1650s. And the first Jews are only just having just arrived. We're only three or four years on beyond that. And Pepys writes in his um, diaries about how he went to visit the Simchat Torah service in London. And he writes about how everybody was completely frenzied over the messianic expectations. Several millenarian thinkers were also, remember that for Protestant Christians living in England and undergoing also the kind of millenarian expectations that happened after the revolution and so on, 1666 was supposed to be the year of redemption for them. That was going to be a big millennial year. As it turned out, it happened to be an annus mirabilis, or an annus horribilis, depending on how you look at it. There were, no, I mean, the plague in London, the great fire of London, and also, interestingly enough, not known at the time, but only in hindsight, do we see that 1666 was actually the annus mirabilis for Newton in the same year in which he developed the, the breakdown of the spectrum of light and the prism and the, the laws of mechanics and the, and, the, and the basic inverse square law of gravity. All of that was happening in 1666. We had a phenomenal year. And suddenly, the Jews' Messiah is returning. That wasn't a problem for millennial Christians then. Didn't matter. 
didn't conflict with them. Yeah, let the Jews return. Their Messiah has come back. Cromwell had already, uh, Manasseh but Israel had already told Cromwell that you have to let the Jews into England for the Messiah to come. Oh, we let the Jews into the Messiah's coming. No problem. That doesn't conflict. Maybe it's Jesus. Maybe it's not. Maybe it's the Antichrist. Maybe whatever it's going to be. He's going to bring the Jews to Israel. They're going to build the temple. The Messiah will come. All of this. The frenzy was massive. People started selling up their homes. Entire communities were getting ready to make Aliyah to Israel. Just say the word, Shabtai, we're there. Meanwhile, Shabtai's in prison and dozens of communities and their great rabbis and sages of Europe are sending delegations to Gallipoli and to uh, Adrianople, Adrian as it's called now, to make inquiries, to check this guy out. Is he really the Messiah? And they would generally come back with saying, we saw a very impressive individual, very charismatic, clearly a sage. I'm telling you, we can all sit here going, oh, if we were there, we wouldn't have believed it. But I'm telling you, chances are, when I look around this room, most of us would have believed it. <laughs> no, no, there was a lot of opposition, but the opposition was often silenced. Famous opposition by people like Jacob Sasportas. We're going to talk about other people later. And in, well, in, 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 in Europe, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and other people, there, there was great opposition, but the opposition was often silenced. Because how could you not believe in the Messiah? In fact, it's, and not only that, it was difficult for them to speak out because one of the things that Nathan and Shabtai were calling for was repentance. So if you're calling for general repentance in order to assist the Messiah in his goals and his aims, and the rabbis would find it very difficult to come out against you if you're actually asking for that. And then eventually, in September of 1666, oh, he's also offering the Paschal sacrifice, by the way. Amazing the innovations that he does. They're actual innovations that at some point, they're all based in root and rooted in Jewish thought and Jewish law and practice. They're just, it's just the application of them is weird in the framework of either the time or the way it's done, but many, many of the things anticipated are actually based in Jewish sources. You know, the return of the Paschal Sacrifice. Oh, the abolition of fast days. By this time, not only had he abolished the 17th of Tammuz, the 10th of Tevet, he turned his own birthday, the 9th of Av, into a major festival and holiday. But all of that's fine if you are the Messiah. Nathan explained this theologically. We have already gone far enough trying to do the right thing. Maybe if we get God's attention, we'll get God's attention through doing these things. And by the way, those of you who are sitting there going, oh, what nutters they were in the 17th century. Let me tell you, let me tell you, some of you in this town would know <laughs> about the opprobrium that was born on a group of particularly hardcore Lubavitcher messianics a few years ago. What? Who, uh, I know where I am, who abolished the fast of the 10th of Tevet and had a picnic and videoed themselves having the picnic on the 10th of Tevet and put it on YouTube and 
basically got put in excommunication for, I mean, you can imagine, Melbourne's just not the place where you're going to be doing that. But it does happen. It does happen. So Shabbat Tzvi is abolishing the fasts because he felt that he was the Messiah. This is the Messianic age. And we know the fasts are abolished in the Messianic age. Rights to women, printed chumashim. These are things that are now coming into the Jewish world. And Shabbat is kind of innovating them from the 17th century from his nuts Messianic position. But eventually in September of 1666, as he prophesied, he's brought before the Sultan. Now the Sultan did not speak with him directly. We know that. He spoke with him, the conversation with his vizier. A famous person, and that's a whole famous other story, but the vizier said to him, look, this is how it's going to go down. And you have to understand, the whole of the Jewish world is hanging on every second, at every moment, right across Europe to find out what's going to happen. Once they knew he was arrested, taken to Constantinople. Actually, no, he met the, he met the Sultan in Adrianople. The vizier said to him, here's how it's going to happen. Shabzi. You are going to convert to Islam. And if you don't do that, we're going to kill you. And we're going to kill you now. We're going to take you out and we're going to execute you. We're going to chop your head off. Now unless you convert to Islam. We'll give you a bit of thinking music, but you've got about 10 minutes to decide. A conversation that went pretty much exactly like that. And Shabtai basically said, I don't need the 10 minutes. <laughs> Where do I sign up? And where's my free copy of the Quran? He became a Muslim. <laughs> this is known in the, in the whole discourse of Shabbat as the apostasy. He became a Muslim. What do you think the effect of that was on the Jewish world? I'm telling you, and Rabbi Gorana has to forgive me for saying this, you know, God forbid, but imagine if the Lubavitcher Rebbe had got up one day and said, I've decided I'm going to become a born-again Christian. And I thought it was a trick. Many people could not believe it. It just, it just did not compute with their reality. And there were several hundred families that followed him into Islam. But the overall effect on the Jewish world was absolute demoralization and devastation. Complete and absolutely abject demoralization. Either because it didn't turn out to be the Messiah or because we were fooled into it in the first place. Incredible shame, incredible embarrassment and incredible, uh, just crashing spiritual disappointment. Now, the story didn't end there. 
Sarah of Sarah, his wife, of course, converted to Islam, and they went and they lived in Adrianople, and then eventually uh, through in various places throughout the uh, throughout the Balkans. Nathan continued to believe, and Nathan continued to produce theological product, explaining why the Messiah went into Islam. He's still the Messiah. But he had to go into Islam to redeem the last sparks that can only be deemed, redeemed by the Messiah. And those last sparks are inside Yishmael. And he has to go in there to be captive to Yishmael to redeem the sparks from there. Many people, most didn't, but many people bought that. Many people bought that. And I've got to tell you that for the next 50, 60 years, people were rather expecting... Shabtai to return. He lived for about another 10 years and then he died. He, only, he was only 49, 50 when he died. But there were many, many prophets, new prophets, Sabbatean prophets that rose up. I mean, look, Nathan wrote several key texts. Several key texts. One of them is a famous text called, not famous, but famous if you're into Sabbatean stuff, called Drushataninim, the teaching of the dragons in which he talks about the whole concept of antinomianism, the whole concept of sinning to bring about the redemption. The followers of the Sabbatean, the Sabbatean followers, in the, especially in, after Shabbat apostasy, in the groups that followed, would do forbidden things. They would eat forbidden fats with a bracha, with a blessing. They would have ritualized orgies. Now these were not... These were not ceremonies that people went, well, hey, let's enjoy it. These were very difficult things. These are highly religious people. And they had a ceremony called Kibui Nerot, the extinguishing of the candles. And they would extinguish the, all the candles in the room and all these couples would have sexual relations with whoever was in the room without even knowing who they were in, being intimate with. The children born from conceptions that happened on those ceremonies were considered holy. The Sabbateans later on actually wanted to rejoin the Jewish people but were told that they couldn't because they were all mamzerim. The Sabbateans continued in a form which we know as the Don Meh. And that brings us back to the story I said at the beginning about how this person wanted to attend my talk and gave his name as Tzvi HaGoel, Tzvi the Redeemer. And he was a member of the existing Donmeh community in Turkey. And there, is, there was for many years existing Donmeh communities in Salonika. And now, of course, they've found a very nice home for themselves on the internet. But the Donmeh still goes and they still believe Shabtai Tzvi is the Messiah. And they wake up every morning with the sunrise and they go, Shabtai, Shabtai, where are you? So they were repudiated by the Jewish communities and repudiated by the Muslim communities. And they kind of had to fit within Turkey. You have to have a recognized religion. And they were tolerated, but never really recognized. They exist in this kind of amorphous zone. And many of them carry on traditions where you only find out that you are a member of the Donmeh and your family is Donmeh when you're like Bar Mitzvah. They take you aside and they tell you, by the way, we're Donmeh. That's who we are. 
It's a convert. That's what it, that's what the word means. Yeah, yeah. yeah. As, and they are they are the ma'aminim. They are the believers, the true believers. That's how the Sabbateans refer to themselves as the ma'aminim, as the believers. It's amazing the Muslims have not made more of this. That your Messiah converted to Islam. Now, in the generations that followed, there were many great prophets of the Sabbatean tradition. People like Abraham Miguel Cardozo, who actually had come from Spain. He was a Murano and was university educated. And by the time he got into Europe and reconverted back to Judaism, decided that in fact he wanted to be a Sabbatean and wrote incredibly mystical tracts. He married two wives. He was the leader of the Sabbateans and was really the progenitor of the next generation of great prophets, such as uh, Nehemiah Chayun. And Nehemiah Chayun, if you would recall, I spoke about when we uh, did the 18th century in this room, and that we spoke about Nehemiah Chayun and his fight with uh, um, the Chacham Tzvi and all the rest of it, which is really the a really more an early 17th, early early 18th century story. But the whole influence of Sabbateanism not only shed its shadow over the whole of European Jewry in the 18th century, as the rabbis were on Shabbai watch and false messianists, it affected the study of Kabbalah. Kabbalah was now pushed to a secret project because it could be seen as something that would make you go mad, seen as having a bad influence on the Jewish world and should only be studied by the right kinds of people. They weren't going to say about Kabbalah that it wasn't kosher, but it should only be studied by the right kinds of people. Well, that is one tradition. That's not necessarily the case, but that's one tradition. Um, and so not only did it have that, but it also, in various ways, influenced mainstream thinking. It influenced it. So some of the great thinkers of the 18th century were influenced by texts that they themselves did not realize were Sabbatean in character. That is, that they had taken some ideas. Nathan's other books, let me tell you, they're very influential. He wrote a book called Drushataninim on the reason why we sin in order to bring about redemption. He wrote a book called the Sefer Abriah, the book of creation. In the book of creation, basically he tells you that the divine has got two aspects before creation. Yeah? We learned about the whole Kabbalistic notion of creation, but there is the unconscious thought of God. The, the, the part of God that is unconscious because it doesn't relate to creation. It's within God itself. And then there's the or sheyeshbo machshava, the light of God, the divine, the light of the divine that is conscious, that has thought. And thought means it is projecting towards creation. Now, everything that we see, that we worship, and that we are, and that comes into the world, the Torah, all of these religious things, they all come from the conscious light. But the non-conscious light is also present, except that in this world, the non-conscious light takes the form of evil. So it's really a case of God overcoming itself in this world. This is a very, very big Gnostic idea. I'm not going to go in there now. I can see people once again looking at me with those strange expressions. But you can see Nathan of Gaza went into great lengths to explain why the soul of the Messiah had to go down into the realm of the Klippot, down into the realm of evil to redeem the sparks. And he also read a book 
which he presented as being an older text by a vision of a guy in the 13th century about how he had seen Shabtai Tzvi and so on. Shabtai said that the Lurianic Kabbalah described an amazing chariot, but Shabtai said, I'm going to show you who's riding on it. And who was riding on it really was himself. At various times, he was actually signing letters, I, Shabtai Tzvi, your God. No one can be the Messiah simply because they say they are. You can only be the Messiah if you are. The only way you are the Messiah <laughs> is if you bring peace to the world. That's the only way. You rebuild the temple in Jerusalem, you restore the Jews to the land of Israel, and you redeem the world. For the Jewish people to produce the Messiah, we need to produce someone, and I've said this before, that's like Mahatma Gandhi times Nelson Mandela times 10 on steroids on crack. That kind of person is a person that we have to produce because that's the only way that we'll bring peace to the world. It can only come through the Jewish people. And we need to do it in a way that uh, brings about no more war, no more disease, no more suffering, no more... We eradicate evil. That's the Messiah. And it wasn't Shabtai Tzvi. But now you come out, you'll be experts on Shabtai Tzvi. But you can't talk about the 17th century if you don't talk about him. And uh, everything about him is kind of like, could only have happened in the 17th century. But uh, next week is an exciting one, because I'm going to talk about people I don't think you'll necessarily know about. And I'm looking forward to going into that in great detail. We're going to focus mostly, not entirely, but mostly on women of the 17th century. And then in the last talk, we'll just explode open everything that I haven't spoken about so far. So thank you for that. Thank you for listening. To find out more about David Solomon's books, recordings and classes, or to support his work and teachings for just a few dollars a month, visit davidsolomon.online.